So, good morning, everyone. Yep, if you're a visitor here, you are really welcome. I know there's, again, new visitors uh, joining us week on week. That's really excited, exciting. Just to let you know, we have midweek meetings as well. We have midweek friendship, getting to know people, praying with one another, opening the Bible. If you want to join a community group, if you want to find out about a community group, please come and speak to one of us. Speak to somebody in the church. They'll know about them. Um, we'd really love you bedded into the life of the church. Um, and if you are a visitor, keep coming again and again on Sunday and get involved in the adventure of God that we've been called to in this nation, Teesside and the nations. I just want to start really by thanking God for what feels like a big moment for us in the church. If you missed uh, the news in the midst of the slight audio uh, hiccup, which I believe, you know, Satan wasn't happy that morning. If you, if you uh, miss that, we are in the process now. They've agreed. Uh, our brothers and sisters from um, the Methodist Church have agreed that we can purchase this building. How good is that? How good is that? We're about to embark on a new building. That's a new thing. That's a very new thing for us. This place has been a place of worship for over 120 years, a historic facility which has gathered, sent out, strengthened, devoted believers like you and me, but over the ages, lots of people across Teesside. It's a historic building, I think. Um, Isaiah 61, um, the passage that prophetically birthed our church, your name, Jubilee, is rooted in Isaiah 61, says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated, and they will, it's a promise, Jubilee, they will renew uh, the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. This historic building is in the middle of a place of desperate need and opportunity in God. Prophetically, I believe this place fits the bill for where God wants us in this next season. And so we are about, as I said last week, if you've vaguely heard me, we're about to purchase this facility as our new hub for planting multiple communities across Teesside of which this place will be our Stockton site. This is our first site. I would like you to rise. I really would like you to, to rise in faith for this moment. We are literally, hear this, we are literally making history with God. We are joining on from the hundred year, 120 years before and seeking God for change in our, in our area. And hasn't he been good to us? Hasn't God been good to us? As I look over the years from our very humble beginnings in a little classroom type setting with about 30 of us in the room, some of you just looking around, some of you will have been present. I came probably about a year later. Um, um, God has been kind to us. His generosity and kindness and grace and faithfulness have been a joy across that time. I've loved being part of that adventure with you, whether you've been here for 25 years or even 25 weeks. Yeah, we're in this together, Jubilee. I, did, I, I don't think it's a surprise, actually, that this is our 25th year celebration. All that, actually, we're going through Exodus. I believe this is a genuine turning point 
for us as a church. Remember the recent prophecies over COVID and around that time and after. Um, I am doing a new thing. See, don't you see it? We're seeing something. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wider in Middlesbrough, in Stockton and beyond. Do not hold back, Jubilee. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your sticks. For you will spread out to the left and to the right. Chris Frost, who visited us over lockdown, said, the church, if you remember this on Zoom, <gasps> Zoom, the church has left the building, <laughs> making a difference in all the places that God has planted us as everyday missionaries across Teesside. And throughout the COVID season, we all felt that the church before lockdown will not be the same as the church after lockdown. You get what you pray for. The purchase of this building is a turning point for us, which will facilitate this next season of stretching and broadening and widening and spreading out to the left and to the right. It will. God is good all the time. He's faithful and true. And so with, if you like this, God momentum comes a big ask. Always does comes a big ask. God always asks his people big asks. That shouldn't surprise us. This building will cost us 155k. When it comes to buildings, actually, that's that we've explored in the past, and when I talk with other um, fellow church leaders, actually, it's a relatively cheaper building. But I also understand that it's no small feat to raise that kind of finance, particularly in our current economic crisis, as they say. Charlotte and I have been recently listening to a song called Firm Foundation that we heard when we visited Jubilee, another Jubilee in Liverpool. And part of the lyrics go like this, Christ is my firm foundation. Joey was singing it in the car the other day. Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. When everything around me is shaken, I've never been more glad. Glad about what? That I put my faith in Jesus because he's never let me down. He's faithful through generations. So why would he fail now? He won't. He won't. He won't. And so again, I'm asking you, Jubilee, to put your faith in God's faithfulness. At some point soon, we'll have a gift day or some sort of collection for this building uh, purchase. I really want to encourage you to pray about this and step out in faith. But actually, we won't wait for that day. We won't wait for those special days. Right now, we have opened our building fund online. It's up and running in anticipation that God will provide through your, my generosity and faith, that together we will commit to this landmark moment in, uh, landmark moment in God, all in, all in. He is faithful and true. He will not let us down. He won't. He never has. And he never will. Praise God. So can I ask you to pray about this? It's a big marker in our journey with God. Please pray and consider giving to that fund so that we can hopefully purchase this building outright without any loans. That's what I'm praying for. Nothing is impossible with God. 
Nothing is impossible with God. That's my prayer. Do we have faith for that? Increasingly, year on year, through you, I'm realizing that this nothing impossible with God is a lived-out reality in this church. You always surprise me. God always surprises me. He shouldn't surprise me, but He does in this church. So please pray about giving to that building fund over the next few years. I hope you will do that again. Thank you for your great generosity over the years, 25 years. You are such a Jesus-believing people. Let's keep adventuring with God together. So let's get on to uh, the passage this morning. If you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to Psalm 105. Psalm 105, we'll be reading the opening section, then we will dive straight into verse 26. I know I have a terrible memory, but rest assured, I haven't forgotten that we're in a sermon series called Exodus. Psalm 105 might not sound like the book of Exodus, but it is in a way, we'll get there. But just before we read it, um, let's have a recap quick recap. In Genesis, the book before Exodus, Joseph rose to great power in Pharaoh's court. We remember that near the end of, uh, um, uh, near the end of Genesis. He saved a nation by his prophetic wisdom. He was, he was liked as a result. The Hebrew people prospered and rose in number over generations. Then years later, in the midst of this continued flourishing and prosperity amongst the Hebrew people, a new Pharaoh got worried. He felt threatened. So he ordered the death of all Hebrew baby boys. Genocide. However, in the, however, with the intellect of and ingenuity of primarily women, just saying, the midwives, Moses' mom and sister, Pharaoh's daughter, baby Moses escapes this genocide and is placed in a basket, remember the story, that floats downriver into Pharaoh's household, where he is received by Pharaoh's daughter, who looks after him and raises him to manhood in the great Egyptian palace. He's powerful. What a turnaround. But then, through another twist of events, Moses finds himself on the run again from Pharaoh and taking refuge for many years, actually, in a place almost 300 miles away from Egypt, not the important man he used to be anymore, in a place called Midian. Now roll the calendar forward another 40 years. Now at the ripe old age of 80, a mere shepherd, he encounters God in a burning bush, as Gavin helped us with last week. He's given the mission of Yahweh, his God, to free God's people from slavery, and oppression. Eventually, he agrees to God's call. It takes him a while. Um, he agrees to God's call on his, on his life, albeit reluctantly. And we come today to a great showdown between Moses and Pharaoh as God unleashes one by one ten plagues that eventually bring Pharaoh to his knees. And the Hebrew people are ultimately allowed to leave. And so today, Jubilee, is Plague's Day. Plague's Day, not Mother's Day. Plague's Day. But instead of reading you all five chapters of plagues, we'll read Psalm 105. That'll cut, cut the sermon short by about at least half an hour. 
So Psalm 5, summarizing it all. Let's read Psalm 105, um, verse 1, then to 5, then to 26, and onwards. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he has pronounced. He sent Moses, verse 26, he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, his wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark, for had they not rebelled against his words? He turned their waters into blood, causing their fish to die. Their land teemed with frogs, which went up into the bedrooms of their rulers. Uh, he spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout the country. He turned their rain into hail with lightning throughout their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and locusts came, grasshoppers without number. They ate up everything, every green thing in the land, ate up the produce of the soil. Terrible. Then he struck down all the firstborn, the tenth plague in their land, the first fruits of all their manhood. He brought out Israel as a result of finally that tenth plague, laden with silver and gold, and from among their tribes, no one faltered. Egypt was glad when they left, because dread of Israel, because the dread of Israel had fallen on them. Let's pray. Yeah, thank you, Lord, for this book. Thank you, Lord, for this building. Thank you, Lord, for this book. Thank you, Lord, for our church, everybody here. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who has a plan. And I thank you, Exodus is such a key book in the Bible that is mentioned in so many, time, so many times in other letters, Paul particularly. And we pray, Lord God, as we study the plagues this morning, we see the magnificence of our God. You open our eyes to the wonder of you, the depth, the glory of God. We pray, Lord God, as we encounter the God of the plagues, we encounter the God that lives inside us today. So come, Holy Spirit, fill us, fill me, as we receive your word today and change our hearts in Jesus' name. So what are the plagues about? And although this is actually a very complex question with many layers, ultimately they're about who God is. Not who we think God, uh, not who we think God is, but God, who God is as revealed to him by himself in the Scriptures, in the Bible. Though these stories, through these stories, through these people, through these miraculous events, powerful events, God wants to be known to you and me through you and me. Do you get that? To others. He wants us to know Him, but as we get to know Him, He wants others to know Him. That's the deal. That's why you're here. That's God's mission for all of us. So what do the plagues, therefore, tell us about this God? We are called to image, mirror in the world. Well, at least, well, I think at least three things. Firstly, and you might not get to this initially after reading the, the, some, the horror of the plagues in some ways, God is a compassionate God. 
God is a compassionate God. That might not be the first thing you think of when it comes to gnats and frogs and all that stuff, but it is. We don't like chapters like this. They put us off God, if you like, or we try and ignore them in front of our friends. God, you're embarrassing me. Moses, put that staff away, please. Forget the God of the plagues. Let's just look at Jesus. And as I said earlier in that prayer, listen, the God of the plagues is the same God in the manger, was the same God on the cross, and is the same God that chooses to dwell in you and me. He's the same. So what's he like? Well, first and foremost, he's compassionate, isn't he? How do we know this? Well, we need to go back, actually, to Exodus 3.7. What does it say? What, remember what it says? The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. This is how it, this all started. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have, I'm not just concerned, so I have come down because I'm so concerned. Or the, as the message version puts it, I've taken a good look, a good long look at their affliction. affliction. I've heard their cries. I know of all about their pain. Now I have come down. That's how the message puts it. He's come to help them. This is compassionate language from the heart, compassionate with action. God is moved. He's sympathetic. He's stirred. He knows. He feels their distress, and He will do something about it. It's actually not like when I'm, say, watching telly, and I'm eating my curry and rice in front of the TV, and I see pictures of war and famine and tragedy and brokenness and abuse and oppression and evil, and then after that half an hour is finished, I watch Silent Witness for a bit of light entertainment what some people call momentary compassion. God is not like that. Sometimes my compassion can go up a notch. Some of you might not be able to believe that, but it does. I was going to say ask my children or wife, but that's probably not a good idea either. Sometimes compassion does compel me into action. After the earthquakes in Turkey, and especially after listening to Sarusha's video, I had to give to that. You probably did too. I know many of you did. In those moments, we all distinguish between people who deserve compassion and people who don't. We give to those who do. But again, thankfully, fortunately, our God is not like that either. Where would we be if we only gave to those who we thought deserved compassion? What kind of world would that be? Occasionally, I experience what's called missional compassion. We're moving up the ladder now. Andrew Wilson writes this about it. This is where we know that people are difficult, that they may not deserve it like the next person, and they may not even give much back, but we still show them compassion because we are driven by a bigger purpose, a mission which enables us, enables us to overlook many of their failings. It's a bit like this at work, or my work as a GP. I see lots of people who are rude to me and often help-rejecting and a bit in your face. I see lots of nice people too, don't worry. But when they are bad to me, I find in myself that I can muster, if, muster up enough empathy and care so I can get through beyond their annoyance and dissatisfaction and insults. I realize that there is a bigger picture, 
of what I do. It's better. It's to better the health of those people and encourage them to engage the service. So I can muster up this, that compassion. But you know what? Even then, there's always a limit. There are so many times I can be got at until eventually that's enough. Andrew Wilson write, again writes, compassion driven by mission and not relationship, not relationship, will cope, will not cope with continual rejection. And so even this is not like God's compassion. God doesn't have a breaking point like you or me. So what's God's compassion like in the Bible then? Well, Isaiah 49, 15 tells us, and it's appropriate on Mother's Day, actually. It'll shock you. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. This is maternal compassion. For those of you who are mothers, you'll know that. When I think about how much Charlotte persistently, perseveringly give back, gives back to the kids when they were little and still does, it shocks me. How do you keep going? Not just, not just Charlotte, but many mums here. I see it all the time. Day upon day of sleepless nights, the pain of breastfeeding, a little bundle of massive self-absorption continually having to tidy up their mess, coping with the frustration of them doing the exact opposite of what you tell them to do, throwing their food all over the place, biting their brothers and sisters. <laughs> how, do you, how, do you, how do you face that continued rejection, verse, verbal abuse, anger? It happens as teenagers as well. That's the deal, isn't it, though, as a parent? Yet in the midst of all of this, there is a bond, a love-saturated relationship between mother and child that empowers her to keep giving, keep giving, keep caring, keep caring, going out of her way to do anything for her children. Can a mother forget the baby of her, at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born, though she may forget? Sadly, we hear those stories, don't we, about some parents. Though she may forget, I will not forget you, says God. We see this crystal clear in Jesus. God with us, don't we? Jesus didn't hang around primarily with the influential people. He hung, around, he hung out with the marginalized, the do-badders, the beggars, the prostitutes, the rejected, the outcasts. He wasn't repelled um, by disgrace or poverty. Actually, he was attracted to it. Sometimes we can read the Exodus story and think, of course God will be compassionate to the innocents, the Hebrew innocents, the Hebrew slaves. Of course God will save the innocents. That's exactly what God should do. They deserve that from God. But hey, look further. Look deeper. God knows much better than that. Just wait till they get onto the other side of the Red Sea. Time after time, these very same innocents that God draws out, redeems, saves, and rescues, those very people become hostile, often aggressive, complaining, disobedient, rebelling against this very God who saves them. Yet still, 
his compassion knows no bounds. Terry Virgo, who fathered our movement of churches way back, he writes this, his comp- God's compassion, his compassion comes from a deeper well, a deeper well. God is a God of compassion. So important as we see the next two chapters of power unleashed by this God. So important as we look at the next two characteristics. He's a God of compassion. We cannot separate his compassion from the rest of what he's like. It's who he is. So what else? Well, well, God is also a God of justice. We're not as keen on that description of God, I know, but he is the judge. He is the judge of the whole earth. These plagues, what are they? They are an act of judgment. They are a display of the righteous fury. Righteous fury of God against injustice. Psalm 7 tells us God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, that means righteous anger, every day. You see, there's no pleasing people, is there? Me included. Depending on how I'm feeling, I can sometimes attack God for not judging enough and then attack him when, he's think, when, I, when I think he's not judging enough or too much. I'm fickle like that. In fact, when people say, how can God allow that evil to continue and also say, how can God say that sleeping with my boyfriend is wrong, those two things actually contradict one another, don't they? Think about it. A bit like complaining that the drug laws are not being enforced and then whinging about getting a parking ticket. We are all fickle like that. But thankfully, our God is not fickle like that. Revelation 19 reads, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He is called faithful and true with justice. He judges and makes war. In fact, the Christian understanding of hell, which most people find abhorrent, just haven't thought it through. Again, fickle. The Bible tells us that there will be a final day when God will judge how everyone has lived externally, our actions, how we have handled ourselves, but also internally, our thoughts and motives, those hidden things. And actually, on that day, whatever you thought about it before, you will not be in disagreement on that day. You will see everything in the true light of God. And on that very day, on that final judgment, your mouth will be shut, whoever you are. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a British preacher, writes this, Death is the great leveler that brings us all to the same position. We are all equal at that point. We all come face to face with God, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The great question is not how do we face this life and the world, like most of us are fixated on, on but how do we face death? How do we face eternity? How do we face God? How can we stand in the presence of His majesty? And do you know what? The righteous judgment of God, the who He is, judge of all the earth, that's actually part of His love towards us. 
The two go hand in hand. Tom Wright, former bishop of Durham, uh, he writes, the word judgment has carried negative overtones for a good many people in our postmodern world. But we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned for. In a world of system, systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might be a coming day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news that there can be. A loving God could not not be a righteous judge, could he? Otherwise, he wouldn't be worth worshipping like a corrupt mafia chieftain or spring doctor. God is not like that. Yet, this is the great exchange, isn't it? The gospel. On the cross, the righteous judgment of heaven unleashed, it was unleashed not on us, it should have been, but on God himself, Jesus Christ in our place. Justice has been done. The penalty for sin has been paid for, but he takes the hit so that we can go free. That's love. That's love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves you and me. And so now for those of you who trust and cherish Jesus as the one who loves you so much that he died for you, when you fall down, face down before the judgment of God, and you will one day, we all will one day, do you know what? It'll be a day of celebration, not terror. This will be a moment of rewards, the Bible tells us. A crown, treasures in heaven, rest, inheritance in the age to come. We don't exactly know what it all means, but we could only imagine. It'll be like the excitement of children the night before Christmas when they can't stop thinking, they can't sleep thinking about what will be under the tree in the morning, only infinitely greater. The plagues demonstrates God's compassion, the same compassion that is lived out through me and you. The plagues demonstrates God's justice, a God who isn't fickle but worth giving our lives to, a God of great rewards. Thirdly and finally, the plagues speak of God's majesty. I felt the worship this morning really extol the majesty of God this morning. I loved it. This is an increasingly tense story, isn't it? We haven't read it all today, but I encourage you to do so if you've got 20 minutes or so. You get drawn into it as, as the situation grows and grows. There's a sense of anxiety and drama as the two giants, one a heavenly one, one a worldly one, come head to head in this public showdown, Yahweh versus Pharaoh. Why such a display? Why such a theatrical demonstration of power on biblical proportions? That's the saying, isn't it? Answer, for God's name, His majesty. In fact, straight after Psalm 105 that we read out today, it says in Psalm 106.8, speaking of the same events, it says, He saved them for His namesake to make his mighty power known. 
He's a jealous God, Jubilee. He's jealous for you. High and lifted up we sang, and seated in majesty, your throne will last forever, O oh Lord. I don't know if you've ever parked your uh, car somewhere where you shouldn't have, and someone kind of taps you on the shoulder and says, uh, can you move it, mate? And uh, what are your first thoughts? I know what mine are. Well, who's asking, buddy? Who are you? Maybe it's just me. Who's asking? Who's asking? Well, that's why Jesus starts the Great Commission before telling us what to do with why. What does he say? What does he say? All authority in heaven, all authority in heaven is given to me. Jesus is one step ahead of us because when you give a mandate as great as go and make disciples of all nations, he knows what we're thinking. Who's asking? Who are you? Jesus uses this very powerful word, exousia, authority in that Great Commission, which literally means God's unstoppable, rightful, lawful, undeterred, unimpeded, unstoppable permission and power to do whatever he wills. That's the God we worship. Abbas was telling me that while he was an asylum seeker in this country, he was sleeping on the floor of a friend uh, of his who was, um, uh, who was in an open-door house. So, and he was breaking some rules. He only told me in the car. He didn't realize I was going to tell everybody this morning. <laughs> he was breaking some of the rules. He shouldn't have been there. Then war betide. Who finds him on the floor one morning? Paul Cattrall, housing manager. Well, he's not happy, Paul, that is. So he tells Abbas, Abbas he can't do that. But Abbas secretly does. Then one night, Abbas has a dream of a man who comes up to him with a key, and his face looks like that of Abbas's father, his father. Well, that shocks him. It wakes him up, actually. And then that very morning, who should walk in and find him there? Yes, Paul Cattrall. But this time, he's not upset, but he's holding a key, a key to another room where Abbas can stay. Jubilee, God is large and in charge. He breaks all of our boundaries and thoughts and lines and boxes. Jesus, the majestic king, that is who is asking. Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. When everything around me is shaken, I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus because he's never let me down. He's faithful to you and me through the generations. So why would he fail now? He won't. He won't. He won't. Let's stand. Let's stand. Yeah, thank you, Lord, that you reveal the might, your mighty name to us, that your mighty name gives us a sense of belonging, of security, of standing, of identity, of love and grace and mercy. Your, your, your name, Lord, is a great thing to us. And we pray, Lord Jesus, 
as we come into this next season, as we unpack Exodus more and more, as we have faith for this building and all that you have for us through this building and through the plans about church, Teesside, this nation and the nations. We pray, Lord God, that we will continue to have our eyes fixed on you. The God of the plagues, the God of the cross, the God that dwells in us, empowers us, and pushes, on in, pushes us on in faith. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Come and fill us this morning. Come and touch us afresh. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will show us, open our eyes to who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like us to stay standing. I'd like us to respond in worship this morning. And so the band are not going to come up, but actually we're going to sing that song together. It's a new song, Firm Foundation, and we're going to sing that song in faith because we know he'll never let us down.